The Irish Civil War from June 1922 to May of 1923 followed the Irish War of Independence. In between was the signing of the Anglo-Irish Treaty, which established the Irish Free State, independent from the United Kingdom, but within the British Empire. And it was the latter five words, but within the British Empire, that resulted in a division and war, the consequences of which are still being felt 100 years later. The new so-called Free State, which was established in December of 1922, supported the treaty, while anti-treaty opposition looked upon it as a betrayal of the Irish Republic proclaimed during the Easter Rising of 1916. On December 7, 1922, anti-treaty forces shot dead West Cork TD Sean Hales and seriously wounded Mayo TD Padraig O'Malley as they returned to the newly formed government in Dublin. The following day, four anti-treaty prisoners were executed. Rory O'Connor, Liam Mellows, Joe McElvey and Dick Barrett from Ballinine were put to death without trial and without having had hand, act or part in the shooting of both TDs. As well as a reprisal, the executions were, according to the government, for the common good and a warning to others. The latter seems to have had its effect. This evening on Where the Road Takes Me, we conclude our two-part program on the executions. And in the second part of a radio play, the case currently in hand, we look at the ensuing legal wrangling over the executions. We are also joined by Sean Enright, a legal historian and author of many books on the War of Independence and the Civil War. Sean Enright is a legal historian of the Irish Revolutionary Period 1914 to 1923. He specialises in the legal system and the capital trials that took place at that time. He's the author of many books, including The Irish Civil War, Law, Execution and Atrocity. He says that it was not necessary to execute these four men without trial when they could have, as there was a procedure to do so. I think what caught most people's breath was the fact that the new state was only 48 hours old and they just passed into law a constitution which guaranteed life and liberty and due process to all. And that included a fair trial by a impartial tribunal. And people are asking, well, what's our constitution for, if not for this? I know in your book, The Irish Civil War, Law, Executions and Atrocities, you write these men were executed without trial for acts committed by others. Yes, they they were captured at the four courts in June of 22 and remained in custody uh, for six months until their execution. They were not legally or morally responsible for the assassination of Hells, but were required to pay the maximum price. So on a legal basis or on a moral basis, it was utterly indefensible. Talk to me about the selection of these four men. They were supposed to represent each province, but I believe that none of them came from Connacht. That's right. It's a, a difficult and thorny issue. McKelvey came from the north, Barrett from Cork. Mellows had been a leader in Arthur Rye in 1916. O'Connor, I'm not really sure where you could place him in all this. The, the reality was that um, behind the provisional government stood the National Army, and behind the National Army stood the Irish Republican Brotherhood. Uh, and it is very likely that the decision of who was executed and the fact they were executed was made by that uh, by the IRB. The IRB, with a secret organisation, will never know what the rationale was. They had selected ultimately four men who were on the executive council who seized the four courts in the summer of 22. That's as much as we can tell for certain. 
We're speaking, of course, about a very sad and tragic aspect of Irish history. And somebody brought it to my notice during the week about the irony of this, that it was actually Sean Hales, I believe, that introduced Dick Barrett and encouraged him to join the IRB. Uh, that is so. Uh, the connections between these men were, were quite close in many ways. And indeed, the connections between those who ordered the executions and those who were executed were long-standing. They had been comrades in arms for a very long time. There are many stories about the actual executions themselves. Those in the firing party would have been familiar with McKelvey, Dick Barrett and Liam Mellows. Rory O'Connor, on the other hand, would have been less well known. Because of that, most of the firing party aimed at O'Connor. The result, Sean Enright says, was a botched and gruesome affair, but so also was the shooting of Sean Hales. It was a feature of the executions during the Civil War period. These things did not go well, partly because those in involved in the execution were recruits, recent recruits. In this particular instance, all the men were executed together by a 20-man firing party, five for each prisoner, I think. And it appears that most of the firing party fired on O'Connor, and he lay on the ground in a heap of flames, dead. McKelvey was still alive, as were Mellows and Barrett, and a number of more shots were fired. Kelby was the last to die. His execution was described many years later by Canon Piggott, who officiated. He was able to get up almost and say, give me another. Another shot was fired into him. He said, give me another. Another shot was fired into him. There are no redeeming features of this episode. It's the most inglorious and tragic um, touchstone on which to found a new state. And one of the consequences, of course, is that the illegality of touching all of this allowed others, the anti-treaty faction, as it continued to be in the generation that followed the IRA, to claim that they were somehow in the right and had been grievously wrong. And that is an unfortunate legacy. That when you depart from due process, you always leave that kind of hostage to fortune. We've been led to believe that Rory O'Connor would have been the less well-known of the four executed, and that is why most of the firing party aimed primarily at him. Well, Gerard Shannon is a well-known Dublin-based historian. He's the author of the new biography of Liam Lynch. To Declare a Republic will be published by Academic Press in March. Gerard says that not a lot is known about Rory O'Connor, but O'Connor was a very active member of the IRA and vehemently supported the anti-treaty campaign. Very much so. Um, I think part of the perception there of Rory O'Connor, like Rory doesn't come to public prominence until he becomes the leader of the anti-treaty IRA leaders in January 1922. He's one of those on the IRA GHQ opposed to the treaty. But he was very active before that. I mean, the reason he becomes leader, you know, at least for the first several months of 1922 of the anti-treaty movement is because of his prominence in the revolution movement before that. He was on the IRA General Headquarters staff. He was the director for engineering. He was also the unofficial director of prison escapes as well. He was involved in several major prison escapes of Republican prisoners during the period. And he was also the OC of Britain. And this would involve the IRA in several actions on the British mainland. And this would have included the Liverpool fires in November 1920 in which the IRA burnt several warehouses in the Liverpool docks. So Rory O'Connor was very prominent and he was also involved in the political side of the movement as well. He worked in the Department of Local Government in the Underground Dáil, and he was also an assistant to Kevin O'Higgins, who was the Assistant Minister for Local Government within the within the Dáil. So that's where O'Higgins and O'Connor would have started their association there. Rory O'Connor was a well-educated man, with many strings to his educational and career bow. He was educated at Clongo's College, studied metaphysics, and had a BA in engineering, the latter of which would obviously be of immense use to the IRA. 
That's right. So his, educa- his early education would have been in Clongos, which a lot of the kind of uh, rising nationalist elite would have, would, have, would have gone to based upon Dublin. He was born in Kildare Street in Dublin in 1883, and he later studied experimental physics and metaphysics and attended the College of Science in Marion Street. He had a BA in, in, in engineering, and he was also prominent in the UCD's Literary and Historical Society, where he first met Joseph Plunkett, of course, later leader of the Easter Rising, and the two of them were involved in the Young Ireland branch of the United Irish League. And yes, he worked in the Canadian Railways for five years. He left in 1911. He returned to Ireland just before the 1916 Rising, where he took up a job in Dublin Corporation. He joined the IRP and he joined the Volunteers. So he was involved in the planning of the Easter Rising. He was attached to what's called the Kimmage Garrison, which is where related to where the Bunkers were based in their Kimmage estate in South Dublin. So Rory O'Connor would have done a lot of intelligence scouting for uh, the Volunteers during the Rising itself. Now, it's very interesting about Rory. He wasn't actually captured during the Easter Rising. He was actually wounded and he kind of recovered under an alias in a hospital. But he was one of those, along with Cahill Brew, who was very important to the rebuilding of the political and military wings of the revolutionary movement after 1916. He would have been one of those responsible for bringing together both wings of Sinn Féin when it reformed under a Republican constitution in late November 1917. So again, Rory O'Connor, he's not just active in the military side of the movement, he's very prominent in the political wing of the movement as well. And that brings part one of Where the Road Takes Me to a Close. Coming up on a fairly lengthy part two, we bring you the concluding part of the radio play, The Case Currently in Hand. Written by Mike Russell from Clonakilty, it deals with the aftermath of the executions and continues on from where we left off last week. <laughs>